0: Welcome guys, back to the Grateful Living Podcast. Today I am thankful to, be, uh, to have Christine O'Donnell. Uh, Christine is the owner of Beacon Gallery an Art Gallery in Boston, South End, featuring emerging and mid-career artists uh, with a focus on social justice. Christine, uh, thank you for joining me.
1: Hi, happy to be here. Awesome.
0: Um, so let, let's take it, let's take it way back. Um, let's start at the beginning. Um, you know, where, were, where did you grow up? Uh, maybe talk a little bit about your family situation and, um, you know, what type of kid you were, things of that nature.
2: Sure. Um, so I grew up not far from here. I'm originally from Newton, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. I'm the eldest of three girls. Um, my family remains very close to this day. Uh, we all really enjoy spending time together. Uh, let's see, as a child, I was and continued to be kind of like one of those perfect people pleaser, you know, trying to always help my mother and things like that, and yep. always worried about making mistakes. And um, I had, I would say, a taste for adventure that I didn't always indulge in. Um, more to come on that later. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I loved art from a young age but didn't really know how to express that but clearly I've managed to do that now and I loved to read from a very young age I was obsessed with the Little House on the Prairie series I must have yeah. read that over and over again fantasized yeah. about I don't know living a frontier life.
0: <laughs> uh, what got you into art um, were you you know were you yourself involved in- like painting and drawing?
2: So I'm a product of the Newton Public Schools and I had my art classes there. Pretty much everything I know and the very foundation of my education was from the public school system. I speak fluent French and love the arts. I wouldn't say I'm a great artist or anything like that, but my appreciation for the arts probably comes from my background there. And, Yeah, it started there, but it also started with this um, coffee table book that my parents had that was about Monet. And I would go and sit in the living room and look through that book over and over again. I wouldn't really read anything from it, but I would just look at Monet's paintings over and over again. And my parents would take us to museums, particularly the MFA, maybe every once in a while, every few years or so. So I probably saw a few of them in person, but really I think my appreciation for the fine arts started with that book and it was one of the books that when my parents were moving out of um the family home that i requested that i have because it was really meaningful to me much more so beyond a regular art book would be
0: yeah yeah um and so i guess you also developed a, a love for foreign languages um was that something that came about in in high school or was it even at a younger age?
2: That's a really good question. Um, When did I start loving foreign languages? Because um, I think I always loved them. I really struggled with French in high school academically. Even though I I loved it, um, I somehow ended up in one of these classes that was like, too hard for me, or too easy for me one year, too hard for me the next, and so I found it very stressful, I think, like a lot of people do, yeah. um, but I'm here to tell you that, despite that fact, um, I managed to get over it, and managed to get through my stress, and became fluent in French, mostly because I lived here for years, and um, sorry if someone
1: <laughs> wanted
2: you. to come and that bell, but... You yeah i think they're going to just have to wait unfortunately um and i have learned french and then spanish um i'm learning a bit of sign language now as well i have a child who is unilaterally deaf so deaf on one side yeah. and um my love of languages kind of has married well with
1: that as also
0: yeah was that something you in a high school in high school you were like you just I mean, it it probably was a requirement to take a foreign language, but um, did you know it in high school that you would, you know, end Um, up?
2: No. So I ended up studying abroad in college and um, I went to Strasbourg, France. I also met my husband in French class at Holy Cross. And so I think between the two of those things, I um, really, those both kind of made me in, encouraged me to continue with my love of French probably so spent a, le- a year living with a host family in France and I love the travel aspect I'd always really enjoyed seeing new cities seeing new places I always wanted to visit the art galleries first as well yeah. it would have been a sign yeah. also what I wanted to do um, in the end I've had a couple different careers which I could talk to you about And the languages, though, I think I really enjoy expressing myself. I love to write also. So the reading, the writing, um, the linguistics in general has always fascinated me. I really enjoyed French poetry, which might seem a bit cliche, but there's just something about the way the words flow together has always just really moved me.
0: Gotcha. I'm going to take it back a little bit more. So I guess um, let's take it a little bit back to high school um, and your decision to go to Holy Cross, um, what were some of the factors involved in there? Um, at that time, did you know you were you know, a humanities person and, and things of that nature?
2: I knew that I wanted to study something in the humanities, that's for sure. Um, liberal arts was where I was headed. Um, I started actually as a sociology and anthropology major. As a young child, I desperately wanted to be an archeologist. That was like my first job that I really wanted. So there's always been something about studying people, studying artifacts, being around objects made by others. I think that's always really spoken to me. And for Holy Cross, um, my father went there, actually. So he was class of 1973. And he would bring us there a lot when we were kids. And while I definitely looked at other colleges, none of them really measured up in my mind to this kind of platonic ideal of what a college was supposed to be, which was Holy Cross that I'd seen since I was a kid, he would bring us to football games and then would give us an M&M every time um, the team had a touchdown or a first down or something yeah. like that. And it was great fun for yeah. me and my two sisters. And so when it came to actually applying, I applied their early decision and got in and went and never looked back.
0: Gotcha. Um, so uh, I know you talked a little bit about going abroad, but before that, um, you know, at what point did you commit to the French major and um, maybe what were some of the factors into uh, deciding to go for that?
2: I think that I knew at a certain point that um, sociology anthropology wasn't quite what I had expected. Although I have to say that the sociology class I took with Susan Rogers, I believe my freshman year was and remains one of the most enlightening classes that I probably took at Holy Cross and one that I t- take away the most from. We learned a lot about Indonesia in the class, which was um, a place I really knew nothing about as an 18 year old. And um, going and living in Singapore, which is adjacent to Indonesia as an adult, um, I really valued having a bit of that information from way back in a, a platform on which I could base some adult knowledge. Um, but nonetheless, it wasn't um, firing me up, I think, the way I wanted a major to, to. And I'd also had in my mind a desire to be a teacher. And I think that I decided somewhere in my freshman year, taking these French classes, that I wanted to be a, maybe a French teacher. Yeah. And so I switched over to French. Another great passion of mine is history. So that was another thing I maybe considered. But I decided that Based on my love of languages, I was going to go and be a French teacher. So I switched my major to French, took a lot of French classes, and then eventually went to Tufts University and got my master's in arts and teaching.
0: Gotcha. French. Um, talk a little bit more about um, your abroad experience. Um, you know, how was how was that? And um, uh, you know, eventually, you know, later on in your life, you would um live abroad but um you know how formative was were those was that semester um
2: so actually it was an entire year Back oh, then, yeah,
0: sorry cross, it was sorry entire year I apologize.
2: no no I, I mean most people i think assume that it's just a semester but holy cross actually made you go for an entire year gotcha. you had to live with a host family I lived with this very bohemian family. It was Genevieve Sam Amavi and her daughter Fenella and their dog Uzbek. And Usbek was, had been abused and would bark at everyone. And he he had to be muzzled the first time I met him because he was going to attack me or something. But he and I became great friends, as I did with Geneviève and Fenella as well. Geneviève actually ran an art gallery in Strasbourg, which was great wow. was fun to hear about. She would come back and tell me all about the vernissage, which is the French word for openings. Yeah. Um, and I wouldn't say that that actually led me anywhere in terms of wanting to open an art gallery but it was certainly funny to to think back on now
1: yeah
2: um and that year though so my then boyfriend now husband and i both lived with separate host families he was with the pika host family across a little um a little park from me and we would plan all these trips traveling around you know on a on a wing and a prayer with no money (laughs) and we went to all these crazy places and um had great fun and went to places like greece for the weekend or portugal for five days and then took like a train and a boat and a bus and a taxi to get from portugal somewhere in the south of portugal to sevilla spain and um and only ate peanut butter sandwiches because we had no money to go (laughs) you know and um and then when we came back we moved in together after graduation after finishing our senior year started a job, started a master's degree and then yeah. finished it and kind of said, wow, is this it? Are we just going to stay here forever? Or should we see what's possible in terms of maybe having another um, experience abroad where we work and actually have some money
1: yeah. and
2: can, can travel a little bit more? Yeah. Um, and I'm sure you can see on the screen, my last name being O'Donnell, my husband is actually of Irish origin. And so he was able to reclaim his Irish citizenship and thus we got married and moved over as irish citizens or mean married to an irish citizen and so we have uh, the ability to work in europe and live in
0: europe that's That's cool um what's the what's the best part about traveling why do you um have such a desire i think that um you know a lot of people fear you know the unknown and, and and things of that nature and you know being in a society that you're not necessarily in day-to-day what what's the difference in your mindset on that stuff oh
2: um I think from probably some of the things I said in terms of what I'm interested in like sociology and anthropology and writing and just um, love of languages I've always wanted to immerse myself in other cultures and learn learn learner I'm always kind of going back to school and doing things. I'm going to start, um, an art, his a master's in art history in the fall, just because oh, yeah. why not? Yeah. I don't know. I just love this stuff. And, um, and so go, there's really nothing like going to another country to really understand it. And so I've always loved that. I mean, and that even goes for another city, even in the U S um, and getting to kind of see the people and just experience the food. I also um, am kind of a hobbyist architectural photographer and so it was a chance to photograph a lot. I tend to get really bogged down though in terms of not enjoying a place when I'm photographing it because all I can do is photograph it. So I, I usually actually don't take cameras around with me because I found I get too wrapped up and, and not really enjoying myself. Um, just focus on other things instead. I want to focus on being there and being present. Um, And so those are some of the reasons that I really love traveling. It's just the experience of walking around a city.
0: Yeah. For someone out there that might be watching this who's maybe, you know, a little averse to uh, traveling or, or, you know, seeing different places, um, what would you say about maybe some of the, you know the exciting parts of exploring a new city, and and um, why they may even want to go to a, a different country. What are um, mm. how does that how has travel you know maybe it's brought new perspectives to you, or uh, what have been some of the I guess the the lessons, if there are any, from all of the travel that you've you've done.
2: I would say that travel is very eye-opening and um the opportunity of living abroad definitely gives you the chance to step back from american culture and that is true even for brief trips also it's a chance to see how other people live and that there are other ways other than the american way yeah. i think that when you're in american culture you don't realize you're kind of like a fish in water it's like you don't realize that you're in the water until you kind of step outside the fishbowl and can kind of look at it from the outside. And in traveling elsewhere is a chance to see how other people live and that we do have a real culture here in America um, that's very identifiable to others outside of our culture. Um, I think a lot of people find themselves afraid to travel because they're, it, that it's dangerous. Um, I remember people, friends of friends who were on the beach um, saying, you're so brave to have children when you lived in Asia, not realizing that Hong Kong and Singapore are some of the safest places in the world. I mean, we can talk about the civil unrest that's happening, but still Hong Kong, incredibly safe. Singapore, probably one of the safest places in the world. Um, People think of America as incredibly dangerous. It has a very dangerous reputation because people think that everyone is carrying a gun and that people are shot all the time. Yep. And so it really is a chance to understand that from the outside things look different. And I think that is an incredibly enriching experience for anyone.
0: That's really cool. You So you get the experience of, you know, a non-American culture, and then you also get to reflect on how America is viewed you oh, yeah. know, from the outside. That's pretty interesting. Um, so... Then um, you you did a a master's in education at Tufts, is that? Okay. And then um, you started out as a French and Spanish teacher at Beaumont High. Um,
1: Did that for one
2: year. My students were barely older than I, I mean, barely younger than I was. I was about like 22 or 23. Yeah. Some of them were 17 or 18.
0: Yeah. And um, how was that?
2: Um, and the first year teaching is always incredibly challenging. I do need to say this, and this is an amazing story in a way, that when I was looking for my teaching job, um, you know, you send out your resume everywhere. And no one really wants to hire someone with no experience. Let's be honest. Um, the person who was the head of the foreign language departments at Belmont High School was my old homeroom teacher from Newton South. So she had been a Spanish teacher, Janice Darius, who is now the assistant superintendent in Belmont Public Schools. And she knew me. And so she was willing to give me a chance. And I will be eternally grateful to that woman for doing that. And it was just such an amazing uh, set of circumstances, coincidence to to be given that opportunity. It did feel a bit like divine intervention. Um, And I spent a year there and... My husband and I got married after that year and we moved to France and she was incredibly gracious and having had me there for a year teaching Spanish one, which I did a pretty mediocre job teaching. And I think I'm still being generous with myself and, um, and French three, which is kind of like the lead up to AP
1: and,
2: um, and to think now that those students are really like well into their adulthood is crazy to me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned that you moved to France after that year, um, what was, you know, what made you, you know, ultimately decide to take that leap of faith? And
2: Oh yeah, it definitely was a leap of faith. My husband and I over our, um, so we would have been just um, still fiancés at this point, my April vacation, we went to France and my husband had lined up job interviews. He works in finance, and so he's working at a a firm here in the US. He'd lined up job interviews with a couple of banks and went on maybe like seven different job interviews, Um, but nothing really came of it. I mean, his French is good enough, but they're all saying like, well, let us know when you've moved here, essentially. Like, we're not gonna do anything. We're not gonna give you a job until you've moved here. Yeah. so at a certain point, we literally had to just say, we are leaving. We are going to get married. Yeah. I'm not coming back to my job in the fall. My husband had to quit his job um, buy plane ticket and, um, and, ca- and take that leap of faith. And I wanna say it was sometime maybe in like May or June. And I, wanted to, I, I believe that after that, maybe two weeks later, he got an actual um, job offer. Yeah. And it wasn't like a, a contract that you would sign, but it was like, we have something we want you to try out when you get here. Like, here's a job that we want you to do, and we think you can do it well. Um, and that was working on the request for proposal team at BNP Paribas, uh, which is a, one of the largest banks in France. They also sponsor the French Open, if anyone follows tennis. Yep. And he worked for them for the entire six years we lived in Paris and then three years in Hong Kong.
1: Um,
2: So that really worked out in lots of different positions. Yeah. And yeah, I'll tell you more about what I did, which
1: was not quite as
2: long as
1: that.
0: How hard of a decision, um, I mean, you're like 23, 24, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm sure your parents, his parents, may have had some questions. I'm sure your friends even were like, what are you doing? Um,
2: We We got married July 10th, 2004 and moved over like August 15th, August 20th to after like our honeymoon and a few weeks kicking around the Northeast. Um, Yeah, there were, we like pretty much took all our wedding presents and put them in a closet and didn't look at them for 13 years.
1: Wow. Um,
2: I mean, we had opened them,
1: had <laughs> the thank you notes,
2: but that was it. Uh, there were a lot, of, a lot of people, I think, were wondering what, what we were doing. But I think they also realized that at such a young age with no children and no real ties, we didn't have a house or anything like that. It's like, what's the, you know, what's the worst that could happen? You kind of come back with your tail between your legs. And I think that's um, honestly a philosophy that I have held on to. Through the years, in a way, even with opening the gallery, it's like what the worst thing that could happen is that I fail, and failure is never fun. But if you can kind of assume upon yourself and be okay with like what the worst scenario is going to be, then it gives you the freedom to try, yeah. right? Because it's like I'm not going to die if this if this business goes under. I'm not going to um, die if if i can't make it in france i thought we, the jobs don't come through yeah and and so that gave us the freedom to kind of go over there and um give it a go it was incredibly hard though
0: yeah um how hard is uh moving i mean obviously you spent a year in, in france but uh i mean oh know. living with a family is
2: completely different than like yeah. making a life there Um, we barely could get a bank account. So you have this like vicious cycle. So the French bureaucracy is like out of this world. Love the French, love the language, love the country, love the food, amazing, everything, great. But the bureaucracy, my God, my husband was working for the bank and um, like literally we could not get a bank account. And we finally managed to get a bank account only because we got a letter from his boss And he worked at, like, number five, and the bank was at number 51. And, you know, we had to bring the letter down to number 51, and they said, the only reason that we're letting you in is because you're working down the street. Wow. Yeah. And we still have the bank account. We can't close it, because you have to go (laughs) (laughs) back.
0: That's funny. Um, So talk about what you were doing in France. Um...
2: I spent the first six months Convinced that I somehow was going to make French friends for myself, which is virtually impossible, just like it is anywhere else if you like don't have kids or a job or like anything to do. So <laughs> I spent six months essentially being very lonely,
1: yeah.
2: um, and so I have a ton of empathy for any expats out there, and I'm always delighted to talk to people when they come into the gallery who have just moved from anywhere, because I, I like want to orient them and help them and, and probably come across as way too aggressive as a result. <laughs> but, <laughs>
1: whatever.
2: Um, and then I joined a, a, an American women's association, made some connections there and ended up getting a job working in, um, a firm there through one of those connections where it started out. It was like, they had hired me to do like some English translations, but then the next thing I knew, and so this is completely outside of education, let's yeah. just say. Um, cause I kind of said like, Oh, Colts to Newcastle. I can't work in teaching cause I only want to teach French. I don't want to teach English. Um, so I gotta find something else to do. And, um, I ended up working like at this, at this company called Kiwi, which was like a a mobile phone startup company that had been bought by American Greetings, which is the card company in the U S and, um, they were doing like personalization of your mobile phone. And this was back when it was like the flip phones and everything like that. And I ended up in like the sales marketing roles and, I would say I learned a lot from it, but it and made some friends um, that I still have. But it was not not for me. Desk jobs I learned through that job, and then through the subsequent one, which was working at another kind of larger marketing firm. Um, also, just it wasn't it wasn't my cup of tea. Having a boss, having people tell me what to do. I also realized that I really like being my own. Um, my own boss, getting to decide what my day looks like.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. So then I ended up uh, deciding to go back to teaching after a couple of years, and um, worked at an international school as an upper elementary English teacher. I really enjoyed that.
0: Yeah. Um, I guess, was there ever a point at which you and uh, your husband were thinking like, oh man, like I, I this might may have been a mistake i want to go back or i mean
2: you know no i don't think there was i mean we talked about moving back originally we were going to go for two years right but so after two years though we felt like we wanted to stay a little bit longer so then we're like we'll stay for four years but then when we got to four years it was 2008 there were no jobs back in the u.s it was the financial crisis and so my husband had a job it was steady and He was okay. And so really all we could do was stay. Um, It didn't feel like there were a ton of different options. And in a way it's his job that has really led us from place to place. Even this move back to Boston um, was for his job. And um, so we, we never really felt like we had made any missteps in terms of like, oh, we shouldn't have done this or that. Although um, the move to Singapore was incredibly precipitous. And I can tell you about, more about that as we, get, as we get closer to that time.
0: Yeah. What was, um, I guess, what's the hardest part about living abroad? I mean, I, I assume most of your friends were in the U.S. I'm not sure how much you saw them. Things. Like, I think what's hard
2: is that it's not even like, it, I would say being apart from Family. family. Because the thing is, is that we really only made our friends in college and then, you know, had a few friends from our first couple of years back, but then then we moved abroad and we made our friends in France and then we had to leave those friends. And then we made our friends in Hong Kong and we had to leave those friends and then we made our friends in Singapore. And some of our friends from Hong Kong ended up in Singapore at the same time as us because that's what people just go back and forth between those two cities constantly. Um, I think the leaving behind of friends in any country is maybe one of the hardest things. And then leaving your family back in the US. My husband's family found it incredibly difficult to have us abroad because they weren't as um, seasoned travelers as um, my parents were. But for both families, it was very hard. Video chat made things easier, but there's nothing like seeing people in person. Yeah.
0: Um, In your time there was, there's something about the, you know, French society that you wish uh, American society would adopt?
2: Ooh, Um, I mean, I wouldn't complain about all the vacation. There was the French, the um, RTT, which is um, the 35 hour work week, which means that if you work more than 35 hours for people in certain roles, like my husband, Instead of forcing you to only work 35 hours, what they do is they just add a certain amount of extra time to your vacation time. So my husband was coming away with like nine weeks of vacation every year, which is totally absurd. Yeah. And so we definitely got to travel a lot. Um, I mean there are a lot, there are a lot of negative Parts of having that much vacation. Let's be clear. Uh, so I say all of this a bit tongue in cheek, but it was it was fantastic to have that much vacation. The French do have a certain joie de vivre, as we say. Like the food is amazing, the wine is fantastic. Um, French meals were great, and and there there's it's a less consumeristic culture, and and that was something that I really did appreciate living there.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, so you spent about. Uh... Three years there, and then you moved to Hong Kong?
2: Yeah, we were there for um, just about four years. So we were there from, or no, I'm sorry, just about six years. We were there from 2004 until 2010. And then in March 2010, it took about two years for BNP Paribas to kind of like get the, all the wheels in motion. This is what happens at like old school French banks um, for to expatriate us to Hong Kong. And so we became like traditional expats in Hong Kong and moved there in March of 2010. And we were there for about four years. And that was fantastic. The chance to travel in Asia was amazing. I yeah. loved that went to Vietnam, went to, oh, we'd been to Cambodia previously, because um, again, the, the, the French influence, um, BNP had done some like big trips there. And so we, we, I went and met my husband in uh, Vietnam and Cambodia trip previously, um, went to India and Nepal over Christmas uh, one time and um, Thailand and Singapore and Bali and then um, we had our first child on 11-11-11, which wow. was a really fun date for him to have as a birthday. I gets a lot of comments, but and, and made a really great group of friends. We had like this one group of friends. We could do lots of fun things together, which was really great. So it remains my favorite place of all the places that we lived.
0: What was the incentive or was uh, to move to Hong Kong? Why did you guys want to do that?
2: Um, so BNP kind of created a role for my husband there. They had a job that they wanted him to do. And we liked the idea of having another travel experience and another chapter abroad that would kind of broaden our horizons beyond France. Um, and it's, it was just, I think that like desire to see a different part of the world too. We had seen, at, at, at a certain point, we stopped traveling in Europe. I think we called it being churched out or being cathedral or, and, and castled out or something. Yeah. Felt like we had seen everything. So we stopped um, going really close by and went to places further away like Dubai and Turkey. And, and at one point we went to Morocco as well, um, which were fantastic. But we realized that we did want to see a little bit more of the world. And so this was going to give us kind of a
1: jumping off point for that too.
0: Yeah. Um, And in Hong Kong, you were an English teacher as well?
2: I taught English at the French International School's preschool. And so I had the cutest, teeny, tiniest little students who were about two and a half to about four and maybe five. And I did that full time the first year. And then once I had my eldest son about halftime. And then I started a second master's degree in education administration and management. But then we ended up leaving after one semester to move to Singapore.
0: How was um, raising your kids in Hong Kong?
2: Very different from the US. We didn't have a car. So The whole car seat conundrum becomes very different when you're taking buses and taxis everywhere. Um, We lived in an apartment in a high rise. The city of Hong Kong is like this, it's like like, on an incredibly steep hill. At least this is on the island, Victoria Island. Um, There are other parts that are in the new territories that aren't so much like that. Um, We had a nanny, so that obviously is very different than living here. Um, and that partially allowed me to continue working as well. It's hard and different when you're so far away from your family as well. So you can't have any other help. So in a way you kind of need, need someone because you're stuck in this situation where there's really no, no one you know well enough to help you. Your friends in a way become your family because you have to band together in case someone really needs something.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, and it was, it was good though. I mean, the air pollution was always a concern but it was it was really it was fun. It was a positive experience all around.
0: Yeah. Um are there was there any part of a uh, Hong Kong society you think uh that America should adopt or was there something that you really liked about that?
1: Um
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the cover class is quite the gourmand, but I mean Uh, dim sum yum cha uh, is amazing Um, make sure to have it for breakfast or lunch never dinner Um, so i i really did love that um i i this is more of like an aussie or like western type of thing that that happens in hong kong but junk boat culture is also really fun where people can band together and rent a boat and just spend the entire day on it swimming around and driving around the islands and swimming around and just eating and drinking that's a really fun activity for friends um and the city is really easy to get around because it's on this really big hill um for some reason that just makes it very accessible it seems unless you're like wearing heels or something i guess yeah. um but Taxis are very easy to come by and you can walk to a lot of different places. Yes, it's like 90 degrees and 100% humidity, but still. And you have Langkwai Fong, which is really fun. It's like this entire block that's just bars and and there's no kind of open container laws. So you can just stand in the street and have a beer and chat with your friends. Um, So I really enjoyed kind of like that party atmosphere. But then there is this whole more quiet side and hiking, the beautiful hikes as well. And the nature is really amazing also. So Hong Kong really does have a lot to offer. I think people see it often as like, just a stopover on their way somewhere else, but it's really a, a destination on its own.
0: At this time, were you like, everywhere you were going, were you going to art galleries? Like?
2: Honestly, no, I mean, once we had our, our, our son, you really
0: aunt,
1: yeah.
2: uh, like we went to Tai, I uh, know we went to Taipei and um, yeah, we did what we could. We mostly were wandering around the city and enjoying the fact that it was flat so we could walk yeah. and we had great, great fruits and vegetables there. So enjoyed that yeah. um, and, and brought him to playgrounds. And what was hilarious there is you had to wait in line. I mean, it's going to be like that here now, I guess, but like wait in line to use the swings. And so that's one of the things I remember from Taipei. You have to queue up to use this one
0: very orderly. Do you think there's any benefit to raising a, uh, you know, a kid abroad? Um, is there stuff that um, your children have experienced that uh, maybe have made them, you know, better human? I don't know, or just... <laughs>
2: I don't think my children will have any real benefit to their time abroad because they were brought back at such young ages. I think that there's definite benefits to children who spend their entire lives abroad or like their entire childhoods abroad, but there's also drawbacks. So I was someone who got to go through one school system my entire life and I had one set of people, for better or for worse, right? who kind of knew who I was could never reinvent myself, but I also didn't have to reintroduce myself every year and didn't really have to make new friends. Um, Whereas the expat life means that you're constantly kind of coming and going and and your friends are, you're having to make new friends and you you may have this great friend and then you learn that they're moving and they're moving to Russia or they're moving to Korea or they're moving back to the UK or the US. It's just um, a treadmill of people. And, you know, I have friends now all over the world, which is amazing, but it's really hard to keep in touch with all those people. Um, I think that you can learn a lot in terms of other cultures, other languages. It definitely broadens your horizons for children. Um, And the schools are some of the best schools in the world. I mean, like the, the schools in Hong Kong and Singapore are fantastic. But that's not to say you can't get a good education elsewhere either.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, so then after Hong Kong, you moved to Singapore?
2: Yes. So I was, let's see, I want to say 30 weeks pregnant with Ryan, my second son, yeah. when my husband was offered a job in the Singapore office. And our options were going to be to like, wait until he had two children, one of whom was going to be like six months old and wait six months to move, which was really going to be torture. Yeah. Or orchestrate a move in about five weeks. So we orchestrated a move in about five weeks because you can't fly after you're 35 weeks pregnant.
1: Oh,
2: and we managed to make that happen, and it was absolute insanity. And um, we moved around. Oh, we moved like the like February 15th, like the day after Valentine's Day. Because I remember our last our Valentine's Day meal being like, you know. Noodles out of styrofoam cups or something in <laughs> <laughs> this little tiny hotel room, being like Happy Valentine's Day. <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, we moved, and then I went into labor two weeks early, <laughs> or three weeks early actually. Right. So I, I had him like two weeks after we arrived.
1: Yeah.
2: And then before our stuffing, before we even moved into our apartment, before oh, our stuff right. was even there.
1: Yeah.
2: So Singapore was like one drama after another. So, Is
0: that scary, giving birth to in a foreign country?
2: I mean, I'd already done it once. Yeah. <laughs> so, sure. Sure. No. I mean, I had C-sections with both my children, so we're not getting into details. But um, the Ben was breached, and so he had to be one, and so then Ryan did the same thing. Sure. Um, the That was fine. I don't think you would necessarily know about this from anything I've said before, but Ryan... Um, the younger one had bacterial meningitis when he was nine months old and had to be in a medically induced coma over Christmas oh 2014 and almost almost died. I mean, like he was in sepsis. And so when I look back over like his birth versus like that time in the hospital, um, his, his birth time doesn't, is not particularly traumatic.
1: Yeah. That's
2: the, the, the weeks, the three weeks we spent at the children's hospital was, or the week that he, we thought we may have lost him. was a time that was traumatic. But I will say that it was also a time where I, you know, people will say you're so unlucky that that happened and people knew who I was. Like there's not that many like white people in Singapore who end up at that hospital and like kids are dying and things like that. Like people are like, Oh, that's you. Yep. Um, But like, I came out of that, people say, you're so unlucky. I say, well, no, I feel so incredibly lucky because my child survives this incredibly serious illness. And I feel like we learned from that. I mean, I learned to kind of have to sit with an unknowing that was incredibly, incredibly difficult. I mean, to just wait in this space was... It was very hard, but you kind of, it, it, it taught me something.
0: What, what did it teach you?
2: Well, just, I think that I'm not particularly patient and I just want results all the time. Now, yeah. like, now, 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 now. No. And I think that all of us, I mean, it's similar. I've compared it for people who know me to what we're going through with the coronavirus, where people are kind of like, I want to know when this is over you know yeah. and it's like, right but you can't yeah. like you don't know when this is going to be over and you don't know what the results are going to be and this is my experience with my son was very similar in that I kept waiting every day to kind of like get the, the answer right and it's like well this blood
1: oh. test oh. This, this blood test, this blood test and and I'm getting an echo I'm getting one. an echo on this. do you hear it do you hear it
0: i i don't but me- maybe there is one I i'm fine on my end
2: i don't know what's happening oh no i think it's gone
0: now it was so strange (laughs) in any case
2: i i really um kept looking for some sort of like proof that he was going to be okay and you know i had to sit with the fact that i couldn't get that for weeks virtually or for like you know days and days and days and days And you kind of learn, I think, a type of patience that I never had before. And it's given me um, the ability to sit with uncomfortable feelings in a way that I had never had before that moment.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, So uh, in Singapore, um, how long were you guys there?
2: (laughs) We were there a little bit over two years. And I laugh because um, we signed a two year lease in our apartment. And then we decided we're going to move and go to a different apartment. Um, Signed another two-year lease. I was going to start a doctoral program in education. And then um, my kids were all signed up for school and everything like that. And then about six weeks after we moved, surprise, surprise, this role that had been filled for about 10 years that my husband had his eye on back in Boston um, opened up. And... Let's say the person resigned on the Wednesday, they called my husband on the Thursday and offered it to him and said, give us your answer on Monday. And we couldn't turn it down um, because the problem How long is...
0: How long were you guys there in Singapore?
2: So we were there for like two years and
1: okay. four months or something.
0: Oh, okay. All right,
2: all right, all right. So it took, so we had two months to kind of move back
1: yeah.
2: but to wrap everything up. To kind of yeah. for me to tell that the um, university that I actually wasn't going to do my PhD with them, um, for us to tell the schools that the kids weren't going to come, for us to sell the car that we had just bought, okay. and if you know anything about the cars in Singapore, um, cars that are incredibly cheap here. I think we bought a 2008 Subaru Forester for like forty eight thousand dollars or something Sing dollars. I wanna say we sold it for like. You know, a few months later for like $46,000 or something okay. like that. Because it's the Certificate of Entitlement. So you need to have the COE that is, it's only good for 10 years. And it costs like $100,000 or something like that. So yeah, it, it is crazy. The cost of cars there.
0: Yeah. Um, so then you come back to Boston at that point?
2: Yep.
0: So that's, um, that we're, was in we're 20- talking about like 2013? 2016 so yeah Uh,
2: 2016 and it took us about i took about a year to get the kids settled until and then i started thinking about what i wanted to do and and i remember walking in i was on a walk being like what do i want to do do i really want to like do the applications again. I, had, I mean, I had to take like the GREs again. My first scores for the GREs were too old before, so I had to take the GREs again and everything like that. I mean, obviously I wouldn't have had to do that again, but I had to put together another like, dissertation proposal. And I really wasn't sure if I wanted to be like an adjunct professor. I, I saw my future once I had done the whole um, rigmarole to get into a doctoral program. And I said, I kind of want to do something that would be more fun. Yeah. And it was like a light bulb moment. And I was like, I think I want to open an art gallery. I've always wanted to curate. It had been this kind of unvoiced desire inside of me since I was a kid. And um, I had that thought in July of 2017, and the gallery was open in November of that same
0: year. Wow. Wow. Um, so let's digest that. I mean, talk about. Um, you know did you have entrepreneurial friends or I mean how hard was that process of starting a gallery what are the what are the steps to Goodness. starting a gallery
2: I mean I came up with the name and got the url and kind of like the business uh, registered the business all around the same time and then once you have that, I started looking for spaces. And I'm over on Harrison Ave um, in the south end where there are a lot of other art galleries. I think that that's one of the important things is that with a lot of other businesses, you kind of want to be away from your competition. Like if you're gonna open an ice cream shop, you don't want to be like next door to another ice cream shop. But with yeah. art galleries, there's a benefit to all being next to each other because people love to kind of like go in and out and see all the different ones when they shop. Yeah. Um, and yeah there was this amazing space available and so i only looked at a couple spaces signed the lease on it did a fit out um luckily i had a contractor that had been working on our house and so honestly like he was still working we had moved not that long before and so i said you need to stop working on my house for a few months come and yeah. work on the gallery and so he did things like this this wing wall that you see behind yeah. me um, yeah. I would say that I mean like I did a business plan. I used SBA.gov, has a lot of resources on it, and which I would highly recommend people look into. Um, Score as well. I did not know about Score back then. that's a the service core of retired executives, has no. a lot of info as well. Um, but so there's things on there that can really help you figure out like, is your business viable? What do you need to do to be able to like, make the numbers to, to make this work? Um, so I, I did those things, but I just had like, an inherent idea of what I wanted to do. There are some books on like, how to run an art gallery out there also, yeah. which I devoured from you yeah. know, front page to front page. Um, and then I also am a very instinctual person. And so that's where I also went was just, what did I feel in my heart was going to work for me? And that's often why I get into the social justice side of things is because that's really what feeds my spirit. And what I love is as I kind of remain an educator, I would say I have just moved out of the linguistic side and now want to talk to people about so much of what's happening in the world and issues that are close to my heart and use art that people are making to
1: talk about that.
0: Yeah. in uh, so how did you, so in four months you got like, you know, a bunch of artists or how, how did you? Yeah.
2: I mean, I knew a few artists. I think okay. that in, in um, teaching and just through my own interests, like I had, I knew a few people that I wanted to um, involve. And then there are enough people in this area who are involved with Artist associations that I just did some research and went and saw their work and did some studio visits and was able to put together a first show for November 1st. Wow. Did that. Um,
0: And
2: then, yeah, my second show was all about refugees and I was off and running.
0: Cool, cool. Um, So, I guess what makes um, Beacon Gallery unique? um, Why should people come and visit? um, You know,
2: I think it is our focus on social justice. I like to think that, Um, as well as our accessibility. Um, I think that so much of the art world is based on kind of creating something that feels very inaccessible and very, um, just that it's only for a very small portion of society. Whereas I try to create an environment that feels very welcome, very open, and where you should never feel intimidated. And so whatever I have up on the walls, because I think, as you can see behind me, this work is not social justice work. This is uh, a photography show, because I do, I do need to pay the bills too. So we kind of go back and forth between what, yeah. we, what we show. We try to be yeah. pragmatic and practical also.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, that, that the visit here should be enjoyable no matter what, no matter who you are or what you're bringing here. And that the social justice works thus is kind of both bringing people in as visitors that everyone is welcome. The work on the wall, sometimes we'll talk about social justice. And then also in working with emerging artists, it's trying to find a diverse mix of artists, people who haven't had opportunities before, people who don't necessarily know how to approach the gallery. And so I'm constantly trying to figure out how to kind of like find new different people also.
0: What were the, what were some of the hard parts in the early years, um, you know, back in 2017, you know, 2018?
2: Oh, I think that I now have an art installer I work with. I think installing shows on your own, it can be quite hard. Uh, So art installation has definitely become easier, um, just on a very practical level. Um, I think that... Yeah, the rhythm of it. I think I often was being a bit too ambitious. I'm often guilty of that in all aspects of my life, I would say.
1: Yeah.
2: And um, that is something I've tried to be not quite so punishing with. So I'll give myself, instead of doing a show every month, it's now, some shows are a month, some shows are a month and a half, maybe some over the summer or two months long. And I'm a bit more relaxed. I also have learned how to use Photoshop better and know how to use all the tools of the trade to my advantage. And so it's not its not quite as hard as it was at the beginning when, you know, it was just learning and it would take me forever to do anything it felt like.
0: Yeah. Was it hard to, um, you know, kind of create brand value of, you know, what Beacon Gallery is and to get visitors to come and, and see, you know, the artists and the exhibitions?
2: Um, I think that, that, that creating brand value is something that's always ongoing because if you don't maintain it, then it loses value. It's one of those things that you're constantly trying to, to support. Um, and yes, trying to get people to know who you are is an ongoing, issue because I think people still come in and say, oh, I've never seen you before. How long have you been here? And I'm just saying in virtually three years, you know? Yeah. And um, I think that, yes, in the beginning, it's tough. First Fridays definitely helped a lot. So I put out good food, good drinks, all that on first Fridays, and that brings a lot of people in. And you like to think that they're gonna remember who you are and come back and visit. Yeah. Um, trying to get press. You know, you you like to think that helps a little bit. We're now trying to, I would say that like around Boston, we're well known enough, maybe. I mean, we'll see what the people who listen to this. But it's kind of breaking out of that. And so we've shown now at Spring Break in New York and at Aqua down during Art Week in Miami, and so it's like now trying to bring it to a, a higher level, right? Trying to get known yeah. by people outside this small yeah. microcosm in the Northeast. Yeah. Is that possible? And that's what I'd really love.
0: Wouldn't What's never mind, the right? what's the what's
1: what? I said wouldn't would never. You
0: know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes. Um, what's the best part? Um, what brings you the most joy? Um, what keeps you doing it every day?
2: Oh, good question. Um, I really still like the curatorial side, deciding which shows to put up and then actually physically putting the art on the walls or deciding where it's going to go. Putting the nails in, no. But like actually deciding like what's going to go where, um, I get like goosebumps doing that because I feel like I am telling a story with images and I find that so rewarding. Um, the other thing is that we did this show called Art Dash. Um, it was just a one-night event. So I should say it's more like a pop-up. And yeah. people had to apply for it. But then we put up 103 pieces of artwork, and over 60 of them sold. Their, everything was $100. And yeah. the artists got all of the proceeds. And um, doing that show was so much work. But to see the artist's... So we made the artists come to this event. And so then the collectors were there and they literally are taking things off the wall and buying them. There's like a line of people buying things. Um, It was so incredibly gratifying to watch the artists talking to people with like literally their piece in their hands sometimes. Um, I really loved that. And we're doing that again this year. So I'm hoping that we'll have figured out something in terms of how to do it in the age of coronavirus
1: yeah yeah <laughs>
2: but i there's something about bringing people together with art, bringing the artists together, talking to them, supporting art and the artists that I absolutely love
0: yeah what um what drew you to social justice because um, that's a unique like that's a unique um that's not something you you see a lot of galleries, you know. Putting out there as as their you know brand uh, differentiator.
2: No, no, and and it was never intended to be. To be honest with you, wasn't like I was like, and this is this is actually kind of more come about from what I realized my shows were doing, and I was like, I should really communicate on this because it's important to me, rather than this is part of like what what differentiates me if that makes sense yeah. so um it's more so like it's something that's always been part of who i am and uh, excuse me and so um <clears throat> excuse me i couldn't do anything but be part of it
0: yeah <laughs> um how how has um have the recent events, you know, um, you know George Floyd's death and then all the protests have, um, you know, the artists that you feature, have they been texting you and, and telling you, oh, I can't wait till you see this piece or things of that nature?
1: Um,
2: to be honest, not really. Okay.
0: All right. No, I just, yeah.
1: Um,
2: they, I don't have a lot of artists who are like, working specifically on pieces related to um, that work yeah. on Black Lives Matter and things like that. They might, I, I'll be curious to see kind of what, what happens with the art dash or if things will kind of come out of it that way. Yeah. What did happen, which I loved, was a lot of my artists were selling work on Instagram and were donating profits to the ACLU, the Massachusetts yeah to Black Lives Matter, to causes that were meaningful to them. And I thought that was really fabulous. Um, And I really loved how and continue to love how everyone is getting involved in their own unique way.
0: Yeah. How has um, the COVID situation affected um, your gallery? Um...
2: I mean, we've had to be closed since about March, Hardly anyone has seen the show that's behind me as right right now. We've been open for about two weeks and it's just been, um, it's been tough. It's been tough. I mean, it's kind of like you're, you're forced to pay rent, but you can't do anything.
1: You're in a state of stasis.
0: Yeah. Um, And then I guess, so are people able to still view the things online or are you? Yeah.
2: So that's like one of the, places that the art world is going in general is going online. So we have a couple yeah. of exclusive online shows through artsy.net, and then all the work that we have has always been online as well. And you can buy it online, but then you can also just enjoy it online um, to look through and you can see what we're, what's coming up next, kind of click through future shows to at least get descriptions of them if the artwork isn't there. And, but I really think Nonetheless, that it's important to be able to come into a physical space and see, and see things if you want to.
1: Yeah. Um,
2: so I'm, I'm hoping that people will actually come back. And, and some people have. I mean, we had some people last, last weekend masked up, but still here. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. Um, I guess, what's your vision um, for what you're doing, um, you know, five years from now? Do you want to be doing anything different? Do you see yourself expanding into other areas or?
1: Hmm.
2: Well, I would say that, so I have a blog as well called ThoughtsOnArt.com, on and I, I really enjoy writing like art, um, critical art writing pieces. And I hope to continue to write about art. And I really hope that the gallery is still here. Most galleries don't make it three to five years. So we're coming up on three years. Um, I know we're going to make it to four so the question is will we continue from there and my hope is yes um i i, I think i see a, a path forward um i have also created a nonprofit that sits kind of with beacon gallery that's called beacon gallery consulting where i'm hoping to do more art consulting and also support artists in their careers do so kind of like supporting artists in their careers and then also Support people who are looking for art, and then do a few other exciting things that are kind of coming down the pipeline. The
0: you
1: know
2: projects that I will reveal in the future, we'll say.
0: Awesome, um, Christine. Was there anything else that uh, you wanted to talk about?
2: I don't think so. I think you you did a great job, kind of covering covering it all. Okay. You revealed all my secrets.
0: <laughs> Sounds good. Um, So I I just want to acknowledge you, Christine. Um, I think that your journey is, um, you know, awesome to learn from and and very inspirational. Um, I think just, you know, being so open to different cultures and living abroad and um, broadening your horizons. Well, I didn't ask that. What's your favorite place of all time?
2: My favorite place of all time?
0: Yeah, that you travel to.
2: I don't know if I have an answer to that question. Okay. Usually, people ask like my favorite place I lived, which
1: was Hong okay. Kong. Um,
2: okay. I I'm gonna go with a very maybe a cliche answer, but I really love Saint Tropez in the south of France. Okay. Um, that's the that with that we go that my my parents and I have traveled together to to and. So I have like really great kind of family memories there. So it's not just about the actual place, but I really enjoy a being able to speak the language so you can kind of connect with the individuals on a different level. And it's absolutely beautiful. And the food is great and it's really fun environment too.
0: Awesome. Um, So, yeah, as I was saying, I just think that um, it's been awesome to learn from your journey. And I know that, um, you know, a lot of people that are, you know, passionate about foreign languages and maybe living abroad and and teaching abroad are going to find a lot of value from this. Um, and I also want to commend you on on starting your own gallery um, and you know being so open to to being associated with social justice. Um, I think that's awesome uh, for people looking to support you or maybe uh, contact you um, or visit the gallery. Um, can you? Tell them about um, how to do those.
1: Sure. So
2: the gallery can be reached at BeaconGallery.com. If you want to reach out to me, you can do so directly at Christine at BeaconGallery.com. That's Christine with ch. And you can always visit us at 524B Harrison Ave in Boston. Just get in touch first if it's not a Sunday.
0: Okay. Perfect. Thank you so much for being on, Christine.
1: This was great. Thank you. Have a good afternoon. Okay.